All right, let's open up in our Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, and we are continuing on in the gospel of Mark. Let me go ahead and pray with you. Lord God, we thank you for this night. We thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply it to our lives, Lord. God, I don't ask that I would do it. I ask that you would do it, Lord, and it would be lasting. As we meet you in your word, as we are challenged by your word, God, change us. Make us more into more and more like you, into your image. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, we've been going through the gospel of Mark, and tonight we are talking about the crucifixion. We stopped there last week, right before we got to the crucifixion. And something I want to share with you, this may be an old story to some of you in this room. Yo, know, I've heard the crucifixion. You know, I know about it. I watched the Passion of the Christ. Lord willing, you won't approach this part of the gospel with that attitude. Lord willing, you'll approach it with, Lord, I want to know more about the, the depths of your love and your grace. Because I'll tell you right now, this story is why we are in this room. This story is all about Jesus Christ reconciling the lost, the sinners, the exiled, those who have fallen short of the glory of God, who deserve death. This story is all about Jesus giving us his righteousness, trading his righteousness, righteousness for our sin. So I hope you want to approach this like, oh yeah, I know this story. I hope you'll approach it, Lord, teach me something new tonight. Now, given the way the story goes, uh, I want to read kind of a big portion, and then we'll start dissecting it. So I hope you'll, you'll be okay with me reading along with me. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, 
Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the the younger, and of Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. May God add his blessing and our understanding to this word. Mark's story is brief, just like most of his gospel. It's, it's a briefer version of the story. And of course, we can get more Uh, more of what happened, the last scenes of Christ from the other gospels too. But there's a few things I want to point out to you as we read this story. The first first off is that, Lord willing, today you will understand grace and what it means, what God's grace means in a deeper way tonight. I I pray that. Did Did you read your part in the story? Did you read your part? I wonder if you caught your part. Did you see yourself in the story? I don't know if you saw it or not. Probably you didn't. We tend to read the story always from an outside perspective, forgetting the whole reason why Jesus is on that cross. It's for you and me. Our part in the story is those nails. Our part in the story is the, the reviling. Our part in the story is his murder. His murder, our salvation. Interesting that we, we, we're in this position here. So tonight, I I pray that you'll really understand God's grace more because certainly there is no part in this story where where it says that someone did something to earn their salvation, somebody did something to, to, to be called righteous. No, in fact, everyone in the story is watching the Son of God be murdered. That's what everybody's doing. They're watching or they're contributing or they're, they're teasing or reviling, deriding him, calling out comments. But that's our part, the, the, the human nature part of this story. Nothing that would merit us any type of grace or response from God. In fact, the very opposite. It should merit judgment upon us. If anything, I mean, can you imagine your son, your very own child being tortured in this way? I, I, know, I know if it was my daughter, if somebody took and abused my daughter, I don't think I would respond, Lord, forgive them. I don't think I would respond that way. 
I, I'd want to have some words with that person. I, I, I would be so incensed and offended by their actions towards my child. There's no way I could just put it away. In fact, being a Christian man, I might have to really pray hard. Lord, I know you call me to forgive, but man, I want to forgive this guy with a fist. You know? I mean, isn't that our reaction usually when someone hurts somebody we love or takes advantage of somebody we love or abuses? Maybe even our response is often worse. But that certainly isn't the father's response. The father's response is a welcoming you into the kingdom of God which we're going to see at the end of the story with that, tor- that veil of the temple torn from top to bottom. It's God saying, come on in. Wow, what kind of grace is this? What kind of story of grace is this? I hope you'll have a better understanding of grace. But let me first talk about the people in the story. There, there's something you must understand. First off is this is a historical event. This event really happened. It's not a good story that we can, it's not an Aesop's fable that we can draw some sort of idea from and go, oh, you know, that's good. We, we should live better lives. Or, or it's not some sort of allegory or metaphor for us to go, okay, you know, um, I should be a good person or I should be forgiving. That's not what this is. This is a real historical event. And you may wonder, why are all these people named in the story? Simon of Cyrene, Joseph of Arimathea, Pilate, we see Alexander and Rufus named right at the very beginning of the story. Did, did you catch that in verse 21? And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming to the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, we're not really sure exactly who Alexander and Rufus is, but in the letter to the Romans, the church in Rome, Paul mentions a Rufus in that letter. And we know that Mark's gospel is written to the church in Rome. So it's very much Mark saying, hey, these guys were there. Simon, Rufus's dad, he was there. He was the one who was compelled. That means uh, the Roman soldier would basically say, hey, listen, buddy, you carry this for a thousand paces. So basically, it's just short of our English mile. A, a Roman soldier at any time could say, do this, lay a sword on you or tell you what to do. And you had, you were compelled. You had to go with them at least a thousand paces a mile. Now, can you imagine if that's the way our society worked? Say you're out mowing your lawn or something and a police officer pulls up and says, all right, buddy, come on, I need you to carry this over here a mile away. Okay, I gotta go do this, you know? There's no way we'd put up with that in our our society. But that was how the society worked. the The Romans could compel somebody of course, you couldn't compel a Roman citizen to do it. You could compel anybody else, though, anybody who's conquered, to carry their stuff, do whatever the case is. And we know Jesus had received such a beating that he could not carry that cross beam. He had been uh, received those stripes. He had been beaten. Um, and of course, last week we looked at how Jesus was tormented by, by the Romans, and, uh, and he was mocked. And so... Here we have Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. He's also the father of Alexander and Rufus. He's the one who was told, carry that crossbeam. And of course, Jesus earlier on taught us with this same idea of being compelled. If someone compels compels you to go one mile, go with them too. Go out of your way to serve people, to lay down yourself for others. But going on from there, 
We also have Pilate mentioned. I, I have a little uh, picture here of Pilate. Do you see that picture on the slideshow? The Pilate inscription. Yeah, here we go. Oh, it doesn't, you can't see very well. And the second line there that says uh, Pilates, um, th there's actually a, a, a new um, sigma, and then, uh, then you have the P, uh, the capital P. Um, so anyway, this is a stone found dedicating the temple to Tiberius Caesar, um, and this, this is a real person. It's P Pontius Pilate. Here, here we have a, a, an archaeological find saying, hey, Pilate built this temple to Tiberius. That's where that description is. This is a real person. It's not a made-up person. Simon of Cyrene, a real person. Alexander and Rufus, a real person. Pilate, a real person. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council, a real person. Oh, by the way, you know who else was there? Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph and Salome. And, and there were other women there who had also been following in Jesus' ministry. If you want to know, go ask them. They were there. These are eyewitness accounts. It certainly doesn't make for a good story just listing off names. In fact, you and I, whenever we get to a section that has names, we go, okay, let's just skip that part. You know, or, oh, this is boring. Why are all these names? Well, that's what the Bible is showing you that, no, this is a real event. These are real people, and this really happened, this murder of Jesus on that cross. So the first thing you have to realize is that this is a historical event and that he was crucified. It is essential to know that Jesus was crucified on a cross, that he was dead, and that he was buried. So in this story, we have these historical accounts. There were people there that were witnessing. There were Roman uh, guards who, and the crucifiers who testified to the fact that he was indeed dead. There was a guy named Joseph of Arimathea that went and asked for the body, and Joseph went and placed him in the tomb. And of course, the other gospels tell us that, that uh Pilate actually had the tomb sealed and put some guards at the tomb. So, so we see that he was crucified, he died, and that he was buried. And the, the tomb was no secret as to where it was. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. So other than being a historical event, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why did this happen? How will I respond to it? You know, can you imagine... You know, today we have these enemies of the gospel still to this day that they want to still murder Jesus. They, they still want to put Jesus dead. You'll see it on Facebook. And it was crazy how in recent, uh, this recent month with the Supreme Court's decision, some of the arguing that was happening on Facebook, the unfriending, like, <laughs> I love how far we've come as a society. I don't agree with you. No longer friend. <laughs> You're not, I mean, it's like, you're not my friend anymore. I'm leaving, you know? I mean, we've come really far, by the way, in achieving peace in society. But, but given the current circumstances, there were many accusations about, about Christ, about Christianity. Oh, it's don't believe it. It's all hogwash. And of course, these accusations are made with no backing. Jesus did indeed die on that cross, and he was buried, and we'll see next week that he really indeed rose from the dead. But there's still these opponents that want to crucify Jesus. They want to put him to death, and I'll tell you right now, the Gospels help us to understand that this event really did happen, and it challenges us, what are you going to do about it? It's no different than in recent history, there was this thing that happened in Europe. It's called a Holocaust. I don't know if you've heard about it. 
but Hitler decided, this Adolf Hitler guy, you may have heard about this, I'm not sure if you've heard about this or not, but this guy Adolf Hitler decided he was going to conquer Europe, and this guy Adolf Hitler also decided that the Jews were lesser people, they weren't worthy, in fact, they were closer to the, the apes, and um, Jews, and African, or blacks, and I almost said African Americans, but they were German, but anyway, uh, <laughs> Jews, blacks, homosexuals, these people were lesser. They weren't really worthwhile. They, they, their value was not the same. And, and this guy, Adolf Hitler, maybe you've heard of him, he put all these people in concentration camps, but that's not where it got bad. Where it got bad was he started to torture them. He had doctors that would experiment on them, do all sorts of terrible things to them, and then eventually he started to exterminate them in ovens. He put people in ovens and cooked them alive. You guys have heard about that, right? Yeah, I know. I've been to Auschwitz. I've, I've, I've been to these places. My grandfather flew one of the B-17s that dropped bombs on one of the key areas that were, was able to free people from these concentration camps. This really did happen. And you know what our response has been to that happening? Never again. I, I didn't want to go to Auschwitz when I went. Um, oh, wait, I'm sorry. We went to Dachau. So then my wife's correcting me back there. I didn't really want to go to Dachau. And uh, she kind of teased me about it. She's like, well, you can't just ignore that it happened. And I'm like, you don't understand, honey. This is the very worst of man. What, what Hitler did is the very worst, man. I just don't want to see how awful and evil this guy is, you know, what, what, what he's done. Well, I went to Dachau, and I actually was really glad I went. But one of the whole purposes of that museum is that it will never happen again. Now that it has happened, let's not make those same mistakes. Let's not allow this again. And there's people today that says, hey, this never happened. You guys know. Iran, that never happened. People are making it up. But we know it happened. I see the story of Jesus' crucifixion in a very similar way. It did happen. The question is, what will your response be to it? That's where you're put. So going on with this story, we find that Jesus on the cross for six hours, remember he goes on to the cross about the ninth hour, and he's, or sorry, uh, on the, in the, uh, uh, <clears throat> he gets crucified at the um, sixth hour, right? So I'm sorry, I lost my place. Um, third hour, sorry. At the, in the third hour, he was crucified nine o'clock in the morning. And he's on that cross suffering for six hours. Jesus is on that cross, not just suffering, but also being teased and mocked. Now, you have to understand crucifixion. Not only did they nail him to the cross, and, and by the way, people said, oh yeah, Jesus, they, Romans never nailed people to the cross. Look at this picture right here. There it is. That's a heel bone, and that's a, a nail from the first century going through the heel bone. That, that's proof and evidence that the Romans did indeed nail people to crosses. It did happen. So they nailed him to the cross and they put him up there on the cross and crucifixion is a terrible, terrible death. It's a death by asphyxiation. It, it, it suffocates you and while suffocating because your body is hanging there and gravity is pulling on it, you can't breathe. In order to breathe, you have to push up on this little step 
that's on the cross, you have to hoist yourself up on those nails, trying to breathe, and then falling back down and suffocating more. And, and as gravity takes its toll and as you become weaker and weaker, your bones start to come out of joint. They pull, they separate. Your shoulders dislocate. Everything starts pulling out of joint. It's a terrible death. In fact, the Romans had perfected this crucifixion because they thought that, hey, you know, if we want to keep a people under control, no better way to do it than crosses. We crucify people, and people were walking by. They see these people suffering, and generally it would, they would go on for days. Um, of course, Jesus died much earlier. He died within six hours. But you walk by, and you see these people being tortured to death, suffocating, crying out, and everybody is there walking. Talk about kicking a person while they're down. They're walking, yelling, oh, save yourself. Say, come on down off that cross. Save yourself. You say you're someone great. Come on down. He saved others. He can't save himself. Now notice what one of the accusations is. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. In verse 29, it says that. Remember, Jesus actually never said that. That was one of the false accusations made against Jesus at his trial that no one could even uh, no one could corroborate with or say that it actually happened. That was an accusation, but people started to believe it. You're no Messiah, making fun of him, calling him names. He saved others. He can't save himself. The sad part is, is even among the mocking. How ironic it is, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's saving others. He is the king of the Jews. Yeah, they're mocking him. But even in their mocking, they're speaking truth. They don't believe it, but they're speaking the truth. He's the king of the Jews. He saved others. He can't save himself. He's laying his life down. He lays down his life willingly. No one takes it from him. About the sixth hour, darkness comes over the land until the ninth hour. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why, is you, why have you forsaken me? This cry of Jesus on the cross was a, hey, go look at Psalm 22. Turn with me over to Psalm 22. Now, David wrote Psalm, uh, David wrote a thousand years prior to Jesus, okay? So a thousand years prior to Jesus Christ, we have Psalm 22 written. Sorry, let me just get there. And we'll look at verse 6. Oh, sorry, verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right there. Jesus was saying, hey, everyone, go look at Psalm 22. Go look at it. 1,000 years prior, David is pinning something out of his own experience, not even probably realizing that the Holy Spirit is prophesying through him. And this is, let's go to verse six. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Skip over to verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. If you remember from the other gospels, the spear went up his side and water, uh, blood, Water and blood flowed, flowed out of him. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. 
My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. That's exactly what we were reading in Mark. Let's go to Isaiah 53 for a minute. Go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Now, David wrote a thousand years prior to Jesus Christ. Isaiah wrote about 750 years prior to Jesus Christ. And this is what Isaiah said. And by the way, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which show us that the integrity of the scriptures is solid. One of the things I was sharing with our our group when we went and saw the Dead Sea Scrolls was was that um, these prophecies that we're going to read tonight from Psalm 22 and from Isaiah... They all, we, we have scrolls dating back prior to Jesus, about 200 years prior to Jesus. Of course, Isaiah actually wrote 750 years. But look at verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Isn't that what was happening on the cross? People making fun of him, recognizing that he, by the way, to be crucified, Deuteronomy says, if a man hangs on a tree, he's cursed by God. And that's exactly what everybody was considering Christ. He's cursed. He's stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And, and then skip to verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I, how did Isaiah know this? 750 years prior, how did Isaiah know that he was going to be crucified with wicked people, one on each side of him, and yet a rich man, a wealthy man, was going to come and say, ask Pilate for the body and say, can I put him in my brand new tomb? I heard he might just need it for the weekend. No, I'm just kidding. How did Isaiah know this? How did he know that the Messiah was going to be purest for our iniquities and our transgressions. How did he know this? Well, clearly it's, he's a prophet. God spoke to him. God spoke to us through these prophecies saying, hey guys, this is coming. It's not accidental. This is a plan. I am planning this out for you and me. There's, there's no accidents with God. He, he knows all. He knows the beginning from the end. And I'll tell you right now, I take great comfort in knowing that God knows my life. And God is gonna, God is gonna, in my life, conform me more and more to the likeness of Christ. He's gonna allow me to be that could become that person that represents him better and better. He's gonna allow me to go through trials, but there's no accident to God. I know when I get into trials, I'm freaking out. Oh my goodness, I never saw this coming. Oh man, I felt like I just got hit by a semi-truck or whatever the case is. It's no surprise to God. And certainly, 
The death of Jesus Christ was no surprise. In fact, it was planned. Peter tells us before the foundations of the earth, Christ was chosen to die on that cross. The fact is, is it was for our iniquities, our sin, our trespasses that Jesus bore on that cross. Now, you and I can imagine the pain of the physical suffering that he underwent, but I don't even know that we can imagine taking the sin of the whole world upon yourself, becoming the sin for everyone else, the righteous person. Now, you and I have been born into sin, and we understand what it means to be separated from God to a certain extent, but I don't think we've ever known a world that is completely severed from God. Only those who have died without Christ know what it means to be severed from God. Only those people know. Only those who will go to hell will know what that means. But Jesus did it for us. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, I knew everyone else was running away. I even told them, you all are gonna be embarrassed on account of me. You're all gonna run away. But here, he finds himself alone on that cross, separated, severed from the Father. I can't even imagine what that would be like. A person who's perfect, a person who has perfect relationship with the Father and now completely severed because of sin. A person who knew no sin, had never sinned, knew temptation, but had never sinned to all of a sudden have the sin of the entire world coming upon him because God laid the iniquities of us all upon him. There's a... a, a um, principle within insurance industries called imputation. And uh, I one time was driving in a car with a friend. We went snorkeling and um, I was really tired. I had an all-nighter the night before and my friend was driving. Uh, so I asked him to drive my car and uh, we were driving down Main Street towards the main place mall because he had to make a stop. And uh, I was, I had the seat laid, laid back and I was kind of sleeping and all of a sudden, you know, I'm kind of waking up spinning uh, wheels skidding across the floor, and uh, we slammed into another car. Uh, my friend ran a red light. He was looking at a light pass, and he ran the red light, and he T-boned another car, and we spun out of control, and there's smoke everywhere. And uh, Anyway, I in that incident, I broke a bunch of ribs, cracked my sternum, uh, and of course, afterwards, like, they can't really do much if you break your ribs and sternum, so they, they just say, like, you know, take it easy, don't laugh much, try not to sneeze. You know, and of course, being a youth pastor at the time, the kids thought it was hilarious to try to make Dave laugh because I'm like, <laughs> you know, try not to laugh because it hurts so bad. And um, so the, the kids all thought that was hilarious. But to add injury to, <laughs> or to add insult to the injury, the car insurance company said it was my fault. But I was sleeping. I mean, I wasn't sleeping in the driver's seat. I was sleeping in the seat next to it. My friend was driving. Yeah, but it's your car. You're the owner of the car. It was imputed to you. And thankfully, we, we never were sued over it or anything like that. Insurance covered it. But interesting how that practice of imputation works, that although it wasn't mine, it was given to me because the property was mine. Jesus' death, his perfect life was his. He stood in my place, dying for me 
taking, offering to take my sin, the sin of the whole world, upon himself on that cross. Up until this point in time, the Jews had had, had understand the idea of a covering, atonement. They made sacrifices and they would, that, that sacrifice of an animal was a covering. It would cover over. But there was no, although there was propitiation or atonement, there was no expiation, no removal of sin. It was just covering of a blood. But with Jesus' death, his perfect life, and that death on the cross, him taking our sin, it was an actual removal of the sin for me and for you. The question is, what will you do with it? He did it for you. It's, it's your choice whether you'll, you'll receive that or not. Now, there's no work you can do. This is just, he did it. He did it. The question is, will you receive it? Will you say, Lord, I want that gift for me. I want to be right in your sight. The veil of the temple torn from top to bottom once a year, one time a year, the priest on the day of atonement, the feast of atonement, got to go into the temple offering a sacrifice for the people of Israel, putting blood on the, the Ark of the Covenant, on the, the, the horns of the Ark of the Covenant, going into the Holy of Holies, ministering in there. But that was one time a year. And it was only after a whole bunch of sacrifices had been made and it was like a hopeful, we did it right. They, had, they tied uh, bells on the hem of their garment, the tassels on their garment. So if they quit hearing bells, they've got this rope tied onto his leg and we're gonna drag out the guy because no more bells. We screwed up somewhere in our sacrifices. He's dead in there. He's dead in the Holy Holy. Let's start dragging him out. One time a year, they got to go into the presence of God with a sacrifice. One time a year. But through Jesus' death on that cross, that veil is torn, and God says, come on in. Come on in to my presence. Be with me. You, may, you might be looking at yourself going, well, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if I deserve this. No, you don't deserve it. I don't know if I'm good enough. No, trust me, you are not good enough. Neither am I. Well, I, I've done bad things. Yep, yeah, you have. But Jesus paid the price for you. Jesus took your sin upon that cross, your iniquities he was pierced for, your transgressions he was nailed to that cross. It is God's grace. They offer him some drink. In the beginning, they offer him frankincense and myrrh, or uh, frankincense and myrrh. And um, fr there was a, uh, sorry, not frankincense, a wine mixed with myrrh. There was a guild that had started in, in Jerusalem because the Romans were crucifying people. And the, the guild was kind of one of those things where, hey, we, we feel really bad for people being tortured on crosses. So let's, let's start making um, some wine uh, some, uh, to take away the pain. Let's give them this awesome, strong pain reliever. And actually, what we have from the historical uh, accounts of this is that it was frankincense mixed with wine. And here in the, the New Testament, we have that it's wine mixed with myrrh. And so I don't necessarily think they were offering him painkiller at this point. I think the soldiers were mocking him. Hey, here's a king's drink. Take some. Of course, Jesus didn't drink it. He was fully aware of what was going on. Later on, when he can't talk because his mouth is dried out, he's parched, he's lost so much blood, they, he calls out 
he calls out, my God, my God, why is you, have you forsaken me? And someone goes, he's calling for Elijah. Here, quick, give him something to put on his mouth. So let's see if we can make him last longer so we can see if Elijah actually shows up. So they, they were torturing him the whole time for you and for me so that we could enter in. Romans, Jesus, Paul tells us that God, while remaining just, justified you and me. <laughs> we can still ask ourselves, but why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just say, hey, <laughs> we're just going to forget everything that's happened in the past. We're just going to clear the slate. Let's just make it, you know, start over. God would no longer be just if he did that. God is a holy God. He is a just God. And if he were to clear the slate for you, he'd have to clear the slate for everybody. And he, one, he would be, no longer be just because a just God punishes evil. You know, we could easily take that prison mentality. Well, I, yeah, I might be evil, but I'm not as bad as the rapist. Well, I might be a rapist, but I'm not as bad as the child molester. <laughs> I might be a child molester, but I'm not as bad as the serial killer. <laughs> hey, I, listen, I might be a serial killer, but I'm not eating people. Look at that guy, right? Where does it end? No, God is a just God. So if he's gonna, if he's gonna make opportunity, make way for you to come into heaven, to have fellowship with him, to come into the holy of holies, to be in his presence, he's gotta justify you. <laughs> Only God can do it. Only God can justify you. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Someone has to die. But God in his love and foreknowledge for you, for me, for this sinful earth, for all these people, made this plan. He himself would be the sacrifice. He himself would die on the cross for our sins. He himself would not only take our sins, but also conquer death. Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate, asked Pilate for the body. Notice it says it took courage and went to Pilate. <laughs> Joseph of Arimathea, I'm sure, was like, oh, man, I don't know how well this is going to go, but I want to offer my tomb, my tomb that I've, I, I've had for my family. I'm going to offer it to Jesus. So Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus had already died. <laughs> Can you imagine? Pilate knew that Jesus was an innocent man. He's like, oh, he's dead already? Man, how evil, how wicked. But you know what? Jesus died for Pilate. Now, there's no evidence that Pilate repented. There's no evidence that Pilate received that gift of salvation. There's a, a court case from the 1800s where a man was accused of, uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to pull it up here. A man was accused of stealing from the postal service and this man was uh, put on trial and he was actually uh, going to be given the death penalty and, and he, uh, I'm sorry, I, I lost my place where I put that. Um, I'll have to give you the reference after. But this man was put on, on um, trial. He was going to be given the death penalty for robbing the U.S. Postal Service. And um, the president at the time, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll worry about it later. The president at the time said, Okay, well, we're going we're gonna to pardon you uh, because the fact is we, we don't think you really did this, but you have to sign a confession 
because you have to accept the pardon. Well, the man said, I did not do this. I never sinned I, I, or I never stole from the postal service. Uh, I really apologize for I'm still trying to find it. Uh, I never stole from the postal service and um, I don't deserve this. Yeah, the United States versus Wilson um, is the court case. And he said, I never stole from the postal service, um, but you don't understand, you need to sign this to be pardoned in the United States versus Wilson. Wilson said, I'm not gonna sign it because I never stole it. But you don't understand, Wilson, we cannot pardon you unless you admit to this and sign this. I didn't steal it. I'm not signing anything. Wilson was put to death. He never, the pardon was done. The pardon was written, signed by the president, ready for Wilson to accept. He, ne- he rejected it and he went to his death. Very much in that way, Jesus Christ has died for us. He has paid the price for us. His righteousness for your sin. What do I have to do? All you have to do is accept it. Wait, you mean I, I don't need to go do something special, go save a certain amount of people, go, go on a sojourn? No, just accept it. That's all you gotta do. But wait, that sounds so easy. Well, it wasn't for Jesus, but it is for you. It wasn't, it wasn't for God by any means, but it was, is for you. That's why we worship in this room. That's why we sing of his praises. That's why we talk about his amazing grace. Because you and I deserve death, but it's only through Jesus Christ that we receive life. What will you do with this knowledge? Will you receive him or will you reject it? Maybe you're, you're in the place where you're saying, well, you know, I'm <laughs> pastor, <laughs> this is a nice story, but I'm, I'm, I just want to do some other stuff first. I want to get, get, I want to have some fun first before I do this or whatever the case is. Listen, I want to tell you, the Bible, it, it's an act of God's grace every time you hear the good news of Jesus Christ. It is an absolute act of his love and grace for you saying, hey, now is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Not next week, not tomorrow, not five years from now, but today, this very day, God is offering you to come into the Holy of Holies, to be part of his presence, to have relationship with him, to be forgiven of sin. Today is that day, not tomorrow. Today is that day. So you need to decide, will you accept it or will you reject it? The Bible encourages us, the word of God encourages us not to harden your hearts against God, not to say, well, maybe later, maybe later. And so harden your hearts to his wonderful message of the gospel, but to receive it this very day because God desires that none should perish, but that all should receive eternal life. This is for you. And what about for the Christian? What about for the person that says, well, I've been coming to church, but I'm still struggling with sin? Well, guess what? Look to Christ. You can't earn your salvation. I think that Christians sometimes get up, caught up in this idea of, well, I've got to be good enough. I've got to do something better. No, you can't. Jesus did it all for you. We just respond with worship. <laughs> It's as we respond with worship that he starts changing us. It's an awesome thing. (laughs) We can trade our sin for the holy of holies, coming into his presence. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord.
Thank you, Jesus, for taking my sin. God, every time I consider the cross, Lord, I'm so amazed by your love, and I feel so unworthy. But I thank you that you died in my place. You took my sin, my shame, my evil, my wickedness, Lord. You took it for me. And I thank you, Lord, that you've made me a better man than following you. I want to invite any of you in this room today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, or there's something in your life that you won't surrender, you, you've, you've been continuing on in some sin, some separation, give that to the Lord now. Say, Jesus, I accept what you've done for me on that cross. I'm ready to follow you. I thank you that you paid the price for me. Maybe you've been holding on to an attitude of works. I'm gonna work my way into heaven. I'll, I'll be a good person. You need to repent of that. Jesus, you did it for us. <laughs> we couldn't have done it. You did it for us. We thank you, Lord God. We thank you that you died for us on that cross. We thank you that you're coming back for us. And we thank you that you conquered the grave. Bless our worship now. In your holy name, amen.